This is episode 109 of Reconcile the Isle. What on earth is going on? Rocket Man. Puerto Rico. Russia, 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 Russia. Eight accusers. Several allegations. Thousands of cases. Charlottesville. Horrific shooting. Deadly school shooting. The third deadly mass shooting in a week. Category four. California wildfires. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. Government shutdown. I've never seen this country divided like this. This is astounding to me. Reconcile the Isle. Welcome to Reconcile the Isle, where my characters and I are figuring out how we can have meaningful dialogue about difficult topics. My name is Lauren LaGiudice. Today, we're welcoming special guest Sammy Rangel from Life After Hate. This is a first of a two-part episode series. Sammy Rangel is an author, social worker, peace activist, speaker, trainer, and father. His autobiography, Forebears, The Myths of Forgiveness, chronicles his life from the physical and sexual abuse he endured as a child to his path of self-destruction that culminated in a 15-and-a-half-year prison sentence. In 2012, Sammy founded Formers Anonymous, a national self-help group based on the 12-step model for people addicted to street life and violence. In May 2015, he participated in the TEDx Danubia Conference, Balance on the Edge, held in Budapest, where he spoke about the power of forgiveness. In 2017, he was honored in a special tribute to everyday heroes in the global campaign against violent extremism. Sammy holds a Master of Social Work from Loyola University, Chicago. He previously served as a program director for a youth outreach program in his hometown of Racine for 16 years. He is also a second-degree black belt, practices mixed martial arts, and is a singer on a Native American drum. He is the co-founder and executive director of the organization Life After Hate, which is committed to helping people leave the violent far right to connect with humanity and lead compassionate lives. If you've wondered if it is possible to recover from a past that is so embedded in very intense trauma, then this episode is for you. Stay around until the end to hear about this episode's giveaway. And you can always sign up at laurenlogie.com slash podcast to get the link to all the wonderful things that my podcast guests and I give away for free to subscribers. And you'll get reminders when we publish this every other week. Today, I'm going to do the interview. My co-host, Melania Trump, how do you feel about that? He talks about difficult stories that make people emotional. And I don't believe in that. Melania, you don't believe in emotions? I don't care, do you? All right, Melania. Uh, yeah, go to the spa. Meet me back here later. That's the most be best idea I've heard all day. All right. Let's go to the interview with Sammy Rangel of Life After Hate. Welcome, Sammy, to Reconcile the Isle. Thank you. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Great. So first, I want to talk about that we're doing the interview, um, and it's just Lauren and Sammy, uh, not Melania and Sammy. So let's talk about why we're doing that today. Well, I think a, a big part of why we're doing this today is we want to spread awareness around the important issues that threaten us, but we also want to spread awareness around the issues of the things that are trying to protect us, the efforts that are really happening here in this country and, and across the world to uh, improve public safety and you know, person's right to, to be free of being harmed and terrorized and, and judged and oppressed but that there's also hope uh, in the face of all of that. As you've seen, there's been so many shootings and so many political and religious ideas spread hatefully across various platforms. Oftentimes the greater public or society feels like maybe there isn't anything or not enough being done, and we just want people to know that there are a lot of us out here trying to do our best to make sure that someone's addressing these issues, paying attention to these issues, and that everyone can play a part and making the world a little better, a little safer. Yep. And I think when we were speaking before about the difference between calling out and calling in and how we want to be really clear on um, what we're doing um, when we talk about this issue. Absolutely. You know, there is no shortage of people who are willing to call out individuals or, you know, movements or organizations. And, and I think there is a place and a time for that for sure. But at our, as an organization, our organization uh, is focusing on calling people in who don't typically have anywhere else to turn to once they consider, you know, whether or not change is something that they're willing to embrace wholeheartedly. 
lot of times these men and women have done things so terrible over such a long period of time to so many people that, you know, it can be hard for a community or a society to forgive them or to even consider welcoming them back, much less tolerating their presence. And so we do recognize that these men and women um, have the potential ability to change. And so we spend all of our time calling them in versus calling them out. Calling them out can have an adverse effect on our own mission. And so we have to be very conscious of that, you know, to resist the urge and the reaction to want to point the finger rather than to call somebody towards you to begin the process of change. Great. Now, Sammy, um, your TED Talk is is so incredibly moving. And for everyone out there, you must watch it. You can see it directly on the Life After Hate, Hate um, staff page. I highly, highly recommend it. Tell us more about your story and how you came to this work with Life After Hate in creating change. Sure. Thank you. And I, I really appreciate that. Um, that TED Talk titled The Power of Forgiveness was really for me, the epitome of, of my personal struggle to tell not only my story, but my brother's story, who, who doesn't have a voice. And, you know, to, to kind of highlight the injustices that were done for us and, and the importance of the need to get that out, to, to not have to hold that in and carry that by ourselves, right? And to lighten our load by being able to share it with people who could, who could one, receive it, uh, respect it, honor it, validate it, and then support us through the healing process of that change. And so I, I really appreciate that. That That is the culmination of my life's work personally. And it, and it's because of those atrocities that I, I survived as a child that, you know, when we talk about child abuse, I don't think that that really describes what I was going through or what my brother went through. You know, it was torture. And that torture of me and my siblings, my brother, started from the moment we were born. I found out, you know, from visiting family, you know, that was there while my mom was pregnant with me, that my mom was abusing me, you know, from infancy uh, all the way through until, you know, I separated from her. But that type of abuse led to me running away from home at 11, uh, spending the next, you know, six or seven years as a kid homeless and throwaway on the streets of Chicago. You know, and of course, you know, all I was trying to do was escape the extreme abuse, the extreme torture, the, the starvation, the sleep deprivation, the humiliation, the having to put soiled underwear in my mouth, being starved. You know, like I was trying to separate myself from that. And so when I ran to the streets, it wasn't it wasn't like I was running to join a gang or to. Um, enjoy my life in some way. I, I was really, an, I, I, I escaped. I escaped somebody who would have ultimately killed me. And in order to survive, I ended up learning survival skills and, and befriending people who taught me survival skills. And, and I started out as a kid who, on the streets, who simply wanted to ride a bike and hang out with with friends for the first time in my life. Like I, at 11 was the first time I got to actually have a friendship of any sort. You know, and so seeing the night sky and not having to worry about someone trying to rape me or beat me or talk bad about me, but yet these people who barely knew me probably showed me more love in, in a night than my parents did in a lifetime. Mm-hmm. You know, and but eventually that turned into gangs and drugs and violence. Um, I didn't really know much about hatred yet. I just, I knew that violence was something I had to do to to fit in, one. You know, it was kind of expected to be willing to fight to protect yourself. Otherwise, you would be taken advantage of. And, you know, I became irresponsible. I dropped out of school. I went to adult prison uh, at 17, survived a race riot. And I think that's really where um, at 17 I saw such bitter hatred and ugliness solely based on, on racial issues. I saw corruption at its highest level within the Department of Corrections. That I believe that is where I started to become radicalized. Like that is where I started to embrace um, an extremist ideology around law enforcement, around government, around whites. Um, having survived that race riot really took me from being a kind of a a child, you know, like a tumbleweed child out there who is, you know, a young young adult who is just kind of aimless and reckless to 
someone who now had a concentrated form of energy in the form of hatred. And, and now that I was an adult, now that I had power and authority and ability and resources, I could leverage all of that hate uh, in a way that I hadn't before. And I had, an, I had been kind of indoctrinated by the older, older people in my life to kind of steer me towards that kind of hatred. You know, they said, look at the facts of what you've just experienced. Look at, look at the riot. Look at, look at how racist it was. Look at what the administration and, the, and law enforcement did to support them. And they took all of that and they fed, spoon-fed me that every day. And then they, in, in addition to that, they spoon-fed me the ideology to justify why hating these men and women, why wanting to kill these men and women was a necessary response. It was a needed response to what was going to happen to us. And I walked out of prison a completely different kind of person, uh, apex predator. You know, it's, I had no value for life, no value for my own life, my own freedom, much less the people that I had now been targeted towards, you know, and before you know it, I, I was back in prison for violent gun crimes. They would have been probably labeled as hate crimes if we were in, in this day and age, you know, and I, so I spent 29 years of my life in prison or not in prison, but in this hateful lifestyle and eventually got to a point, obviously, where I had to come face to face with that hatred and whether or not it was something I was going to live the rest of my days out yeah. as or if I was going to have to change. Yeah, it really struck me when you said I became I went from being a runaway to a throwaway and then completely embracing hate. Yeah, yeah that really that type that type of desperation can lead people to all kind of depths, you know, when when you feel completely unloved, uncared, unseen for, it's like you you become truly capable of equaling the level of hate with an equal level of, of pain and suffering. It becomes your expression. It's the way I expressed myself. Yeah. And what was really powerful at the end is you talked about how you turned it around and you said we hold the power to change our story. Um, how did you do that? You know... I, I really feel like I was, in, you know, by the time I was starting to be introduced to this idea that something was wrong with me, I, I started, people were introducing me into things, what I would call now is the unknown. So it was things about myself that I didn't know. I think a lot of us who suffer, who have suffered deeply, think that we know all there is to know about the world because we feel like that path of suffering had had illuminated us in some way, had had enlightened us in some way, in a way that the rest of the world was naive to. And so we kind of start to think that we ourselves know so much about life, the reality of life, that there's nothing anyone could tell us because they're obviously naive and, and uninformed. Well, one of those things, you know, one of those realities was I, I believed my mother was 100% responsible for the way I had turned out in life. And I saw myself as very different from her. The causes I took up separated me from her. And I also felt that anything that I did as a result of what she did was not my responsibility and was very different than the way she acted. But I, in this process of change, I was introduced to the idea, you know, somebody asked me if I had ever hurt people the way my mother had hurt me. And that that was a uh, that changed the game. That that did a lot of things all at once. One, it made me deeply aware of the fact that that violence is violence, and that just because I directed my violence at a different kind of person didn't make it different than the violence my mom directed at me. It also forced me to empathize with her because while I was telling my story, I wanted somebody to understand why I was being the way that I was, and I had denied my mother that understanding all of these years, even though she never asked for it. I was unwilling to, to see it uh, even on my own in that way. Mm. And then ultimately, I think the, the biggest part of that came to, the part of that lesson came out in, in the fact that I was not that different from my mother after all. And mm. so that, that was a bitter pill uh, to swallow. But once that's the unknown that I was introduced to, and once that got inside of my brain, there was no turning back from it. At that moment, I had to make a decision on the way I was going to live my life moving forward. And somehow I intuitively knew that if I was going to move forward, the the same forgiveness I wanted out of the world, I was going to have to gift to my mother, um, who at the time was completely undeserving 
and still is, still remains undeserving. But that's the beautiful thing about forgiveness is a person doesn't have to deserve it or warrant it to be for it to be given anyway. Now I don't have to wait for her to get it together for me to get it together. In other words, yeah, yeah, definitely. What kind of setting were you in where you were able to be asked and answer these questions? Well, I was um, I was in prison, of course, for the second time now, um, for in, in a different state. I had spent I had just spent about five years in segregation when I was forced mm-hmm. into this uh, new uh, treatment center, um, and it was seen as the highest level of security, highest level of concern kind of treatment. It was like it was like the supermax treatment center for like supermax criminals and. So I was forced there, you know, and that's why today uh, as a social worker, I challenge the idea that in order for someone to change, they have to want to change because I feel that undermines the the effect that interventions have on people. Interventions do work. A person can be put on the pathway to change even before they're aware or ready to be on that path mm. and, can, and, and can end up changing just like I did. I didn't go into this treatment thinking I was going to play, play along. I wouldn't ever think I was going to manipulate it and use it to move, you know, to further my own goals. I had no intention of changing. I didn't think there was anything wrong with me. But through a concerted effort on their part and my participation, I eventually was introduced to some things I couldn't deny. And I walked out of there a completely different person. But the the treatment itself, I, I can give credit to, but it was really the spirit of the therapist that was helping me. He said something that really broke down my defenses. He said, um, after I told my life story, he said to me, I, I can see that you've suffered. Wow. And that statement shook me because here I was almost 30 years old. And for the first time, I had stopped telling my story as a kid because people people had the opposite reaction to my story that he had when I was growing up as a child. People thought I was lying, that I was exaggerating, that I was fantasizing or they were minimizing it, you know, you know, you're defending my parents even, you know, I mean, you know, they turned my reactions to being raped and starved and beaten into a mental health disorder. You know, they diagnosed me with mental health disorders. I'm like, you know, how is a person supposed to respond, you know, to, to these things that a parent does to them? Like, you've got this all wrong, but nobody would listen. No, I was screaming from the, you know, as loud as I could to help me, help me escape these people, you know, and, and after a while of just running into massive failures by society to, to, to listen to a, a genuine victim. I, I was just a kid. Yeah. I was a small, frail child battered. My body was battered. My face was battered. My skull riddled with open scars. Like there was no denying that I was being beaten to within inches of my life. And yet not one person could validate that for me, Wow! you know, and, and, and ironically the people who did, and these weren't people who, these were kids my age, you know, they, these weren't adults yet. The adults came later for sure, but the kids who befriended me were kids my age and they wouldn't have known anything about radicalizing someone, you know, we were just kids and we just ran into each other and it turns out we were living similar lives. And we supported each other, you know, the, we huddled in fear together to make mm-hmm. it through the world, you know. Yeah. And here I was almost 30 years old, and this guy says, I can see you suffered. And I finally felt like I was rescued. I finally felt like the ship I've been trying to flag down has finally seen me and is mm-hmm. coming in. That's and- a really beautiful story because I think about, like, you know, when I'm on social, I I try doing I do a lot of heartwarmingly irreverent comedy but with like a heartfelt message and when I interact with people I try to give them moments of empathy um, when I see they're posting about something intense because I do think moments of empathy can change someone's life it, it is it is it is the ultimate form of love in the ultimate time of suffering it's the only thing that can dismantle that kind of suffering And I think hatred, you know, you have to have a certain amount of compassion to recognize that hatred is also a form of suffering expressed, you know, and people will manifest their suffering in all kinds of ways. Yeah. If you focus too much on judging the behavior, 
you miss the opportunity to connect with people, uh, you know, to connect with people in a meaningful way with your own humanity. Yeah. So you can con- you can connect to them with your principles, or you can connect with them through your humanity. And typically, when we try to connect through principles, it comes off as judgment as opposed to acceptance and love, which implies safety and security. And that's what people need to be able to put their guards down enough to receive whatever message you have to offer them. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we have to give everyone the benefit of the doubt of their humanity, no matter who they are. Yeah. You know, my uncle said it uh, very succinctly to me. He worked in a prison working with uh, lifers. These were men and women who, um, uh, who had hurt women and children and killed women and children. And I, I, I was already a social worker and he, he's, I, I give him a lot of credit for, for setting me on the path towards change. And, um, I asked him, you know, why are you working with these men if they're never getting out of prison? Right? Like what's, wouldn't your time be better used working with people who are getting out of prison? And, and he basically said that he has to honor the spirit in all he crosses paths with, you know? And so, I think that's to your point. What you're saying is that he recognized that even though these men had crossed these lines and were never going to see the day of light again, most likely there was still a spiritual component to who they were as people. And he saw it as stopping and giving that spirit bread and water. You know, it was nurturing that spirit. And even though he couldn't stand and was repulsed by what these men had done to these women and children, you know, but he he bypassed that and went directly to the spirit within each of these people. Absolutely. And, and that and, was a, yeah. that stunned me. As a social worker, it said it reset me to understand what my role as a social worker is. That that and you know, and so I'm applying that same science to the violent far right, the way I've applied it to gangs, the way I've applied it to people who have sexually assaulted children, who have sex, sexually assaulted women, you know, to uh, murderers, you know, like it's, it works. It, it gets, the way it got through to me, it, it does get through to others. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, and I am, you know, I get a lot of pressure to sometimes um, people want me to just, you know, just do this character out of nowhere, you know, just put on a wig and do this character. And, and my answer is always no, because I'm not trying to just, you know, just pretend to be Elizabeth Warren or whoever, Hillary, whoever you want me to impersonate. I'm interested in getting into the humanity of a character and showing that light, even though they're flawed to, to the world, because then what are we doing, but then just showing a, a caricature and, taking away humanity, which is, we have enough of that already um, on this planet. So I want to talk to you too about now, how did you find life after hate? It's interesting. So uh, when I started getting my life together, you know, I, I decided, and from that conversation I talked about in that treatment center, from that moment, I knew I was going to change. There was no turning back. But I, I think it's important to recognize that I had no idea what that meant or what that looked like. I just I committed to something before I had an inclination of what I was taking on. And I knew that and I didn't care. I was going to do it regardless. And so over the next few months, as I started to try to put a life plan together of some sort, I knew that immediately what I wanted to do was go talk to other kids like I was, you know, at some point, you know, like I could see immediately where the failures of my community were. And, and I knew that those failures existed today and that I could be a stopgap in, in a small way. I could fill some of those gaps for these kids, could go identify and recognize who these kids were and identify with them and spend time with them and try to lead them out. And so I spent, you know, I've been out of prison 20 years now, so I've spent the last 20 years working with, with youth, with families. And then eventually I realized, as a, you know, I needed more skills, so I went to school. And then those, you know, that, that schooling experience really was therapeutic for me, but it also introduced me to bigger concepts around what oppressed, you know, what, what is affecting people. And I realized, like, a young child isn't just a system by himself unaffected by those things around him. So to focus solely on his behavior or what he is experiencing is a mistake. So then you realize you got to focus on the family. Well, then you realize the family is, is just a bigger version of that child and is not unaffected by the systems that touch that. And so then you, you start to look at the systems and ultimately you realize like there are a lot of things in this community, in this state, in this country, in this world that are affecting people in ways that make it likely that failure is an outcome. 
Uh, and so now you have to start advocating for a different type of system, for changes in the system. And so eventually, you know, I had to move on to working with the police department, working with child protective services. And then that leads you to the state level. And then that leads you to the federal level. And of course, you know, I, I hate to say it, and I'm sure, I'm sure some people will be bothered by this, but ultimately you realize that racism and inequality and injustices based on those things are really a root cause for a lot of the, the situations that people are in and face and, and can contribute to criminality and can contribute to recidivism and higher rates of addiction and higher rates of low birth weights. And like you realize that it's not unconnected. There's a direct connection there. And so, you know, I started taking on some of these bigger challenges. And then of course I meet Arno Michaelis, who is uh, here in Milwaukee and at the time was, uh, you know, launching his Life After Hate magazine and wanted us to write articles with him on social justice and, you know, partnering with these communities that were oppressed and finding out that he was a ex-white supremacist and knowing my past with ex-white supremacists as my enemies. It, it was just a match made in heaven, to be honest with you. You know, it was mm -hmm. like, here's somebody who's changed completely. I'm somebody who's changed completely. We were on opposite ends of the world when we were in that other life and here we are together trying to undo damage that we've all done. And so through through working with him, we ended up uh, getting invited to Ireland to do a summit against violent extremism with other extremists from all over the world. You know, and, and when you've lived your own experience, you don't think it's that sensational. But when you start sharing it with people and they start saying that is quite sensational, you start to realize that maybe, you know, there's something to be learned from these experiences for others. And not only was the depths of my hatred sensational, but the, the heights of my change have been sensational. And it's, I think, because I'm just a human being, that people like Life After Hate, myself and others, are examples of what each person is capable of doing. The level of change, the level of recovery, the level of love. You know, like I didn't know I was a, a lovable person and yet today I receive love from every corner of the world. I, I didn't even know that I could be loving and today I, I'm, I'm so close to my own children. I'm so close to the people that I love, my community. Like I can't imagine being anything else other than what I am now, just like then when I couldn't imagine being anything that I was then. But love is what brought me through and out of that. You know, it wasn't, it was never the condemnation. I've been in some of the worst prisons you can imagine and some of the worst conditions. I, I have spent out of 16 years in prison. I've probably spent 12 or 13 of those years in segregation. If there was a case for someone who could not change, I should be that case in my own opinion. Mm. But the fact is that these wounds can be healed, but it takes the right approach. It takes the right people. It takes the right, um, the right intentions, you know, behind these skills to, to pull people out. That's why we're so careful not to call people out while we're calling them in. It's, yeah. you, it, we don't need to, tough love is a model rooted in maybe the seventies and the eighties, but that's, that's not what helps people, man. You know, and we're not saying people shouldn't be held accountable. We're not, there, there, there should be limits. There should be boundaries. There should be accountability. But you don't have to do those things from the position of hate. You can you can hold people accountable from a place of compassion, empathy, you know, good stewardship, you know, servant leadership. Like it's you can hold people accountable. You know, mm -hmm. I changed while I was in prison because somebody showed me compassion while I was in prison. But up until that moment, I was a walking, raging war field. Like that's why I spent so much time. You know, I, I was in, in Wisconsin prison for seven years. I should have been there for two. In those seven years that I was there, I was transferred 17 times. I was even, and one of those times when they tried to transfer, they, they rejected me from a prison saying, our security isn't tight enough for this guy. You can't bring him here. He's too much of a, like, I was, I was a raging war. Like, I was walking, creating, setting things on fire just by my presence. You know what I mean? Like, it's, yeah. it, it didn't change. I, you, could throw, you could throw all your gunships at me. I never flinched. But you showed me a sign of, of kindness. I, I didn't know what to do with that. And so much to the point where 
I think I was shell-shocked that I couldn't defend against a single thing you had to say to me at that point. Yeah. All I could do is receive, I finally was put in a position to receive somebody's message. And, and it worked. how do you spread that message with Life After Hate? So what, what are the programs? Life After Hate is, is uh, a nonprofit organization, and our program Exit USA is really where the meat and potatoes of, of what we envisioned doing happens. Our Exit USA program is our outreach program. It is the part of the organization that is doing direct service work with men and women, including now families. Since Charlottesville, more families have come to us than ever before looking for assistance and guidance and support. And, and it's in that process that we make it safe to have these discussions around what a person is doing, make it safe for them to, to, to reveal the very risky idea of that maybe they want to change and they could use some help in changing or a, a lot of them come to us wanting to escape because they also feel like they're stuck in this lifestyle, that all of their friendships and relationships are so deeply embedded that it would be very difficult to separate themselves from this and maybe impossible. And so oftentimes what, we have to... What but, happens if they leave? Well, you know, here's where, you know, there are a lot of similarities between gangs and these white supremacist groups that we're engaging with, but there is a significant difference. These violent far-right groups, they have like a very unsophisticated but very effective underground network of communication. And so when a person chooses or tries to leave these organizations, it, it goes worldwide. And so in many ways, these men and women honestly know that they, they could be outed and seen and targeted anywhere they go. Like they, yeah. if they were to use their real name somewhere, uh, if they were to, you know, if they were to make, unfortunately make the newspaper or do an interview or even get a job, or if they were somehow to be seen, someone in that community is more than likely going to know who they are. And to these, to these groups, the very worst thing you can be to another white supremacist is not black, is not Jewish, it's not gay or lesbian, it's not an immigrant. It's a, what they call a race traitor. You know, and you're you're considered a race traitor if you've been a part of these groups and now have left. So it's that's one of the thing that's one of the dynamics that's very different than like gangs. If you leave your neighborhood when you're in a gang, you can pretty much be safe. You can feel safe. But these men and women know there's very few places they can go to where they would actually be safe from reprisal, from attacks. You know, and these men, you know, some of our co-founders have been out of their out of their so-called what they would call the movement but out of their affiliated uh, group for over 20 years. And they're still making their names are still making the rounds in these underground networks, you know, like, Hey, uh, Frankie's going to be in Idaho uh, at the university of Idaho. And on next week, Tuesday, somebody should stop and say, hello. Like they just, they, they have a long memory. They will not leave you alone. They do not forget you. Well, we'll stop um, and say and hello, it, like threaten you. Does that what they mean? Oh Yeah. Not, not just, yeah, I mean, you know, they, they use the dog whistle terms, like, go say hi. But what do they mean by that? Because these, you're not friends. They, you're at the top of their number one enemy list. Life after hate is at the top of the enemies list anyway because of the work we do, right? And so, they're, yeah, we know that their intentions are to threaten, intimidate, terrorize, you know, like, wow. that's, it, it is. And so, you know, understanding that that is a very real dynamic we have to help somebody then navigate between the very real world of of caution versus paranoia because you know while there is some truth to the fear that they 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 carry we have to teach them how to walk in life without being paranoid all the time you know and these groups do a number on you they make you feel like they know it all see it all uh, can be it all and so now you have to try to filter your world that you're thinking about changing through all of those lenses, you know, and a lot of times you have spouses or boyfriends and girlfriends and kids involved. And it, it can be a very dangerous and tricky uh, thing to even think about doing when it comes to leaving these groups. And so we have to spend a lot of time just supporting and listening and encouraging. And, uh, you know, we have a network of formers in our exit program 
that are are there just to support each other through this change. I mean, hundreds of men and women are here to to kind of support you through. Have been there and done that, and can help answer your questions, help soothe your fears, give you you know suggestions and guidance, or just hear you out and and be empathetic. You know, because there's a lot of take one step forward, two steps back in in the beginning. You know. Um, or you could be in it for a while and get triggered where you think like, oh, well, maybe I should go back to this ideology because this situation happened. And people are right there to kind of catch you and, and walk you through that and, and hold you through that. You know, it's it's the only space that we can provide right now. It's the And it's the only place they can turn to right now where they don't have to worry about being condemned. They don't have to worry about being judged or misunderstood. There's no hidden agenda here, you know, mm. and we're just being straightforward. And so... Sometimes we do that directly with men and women looking to leave. And like I said, since Charlottesville, we spend uh, an enormous amount of time talking with parents and talking with uh, loved ones, talking with spouses who are reaching out because they live with someone who embraces this ideology, which is, creates a completely different dynamic for our organization and program because, you know, historically we've been working with men and women who themselves have been contemplating change. And now we're talking to a family who quite often presents somebody who isn't even thinking about changing. Now we have to try to navigate that different world. Now, if like if someone's listening to this and they're like, okay, I make the phone call and what exactly happens? Like, what's the menu of programs? Is it like a support group? Is it like phone call? Like, what can they practically expect? Sure, sure. Well, so behind the scenes, what we've started to do, so most of the research in this space will tell you Across the world, and especially here in the U.S., what is missing is what we would call a critical mass. There isn't, you know, if you have drug and alcohol issues, there's a critical mass of support for that. There's all kind of systems for that. If you're trying to leave a gang, there's a critical mass for that. If you're if you're a victim of sexual assault, there's a critical mass assembled for that. There's plenty of places we can refer you to where you can go get qualified assistance and support for, Right. Right now here in the U.S., there is not a critical mass to refer a person to. When we walk into a room full of social workers, you could throw a dart at the map. If there's a conference of social workers who are talking about working with white supremacists, I can ask two questions that really strike the audience as incredible. How many of you have ever had specialized training in working with the violent far right? Virtually no one in the room can raise their hand to that. The second question is, when we, especially when we talk to uh, law enforcement as well as social service providers, how many of you know of a qualified referral source for working with someone in the violent far right? And then there again, no one can raise their hand. There is no critical mass of people who specialize in this field. So what Life After Hate has done, has, we, we realize that there's this absence of, of critical mass. We can't possibly do it all ourselves. So why don't we help facilitate the creation of this critical mass? So we've done two things to, to answer the phone call. We have started in-house. Uh, we've contracted with some some social service providers who we have trained, who are now training other social service providers and, and therapists and counselors and outreach workers. We've trained them in the best practices of working with the violent far right. And we're also teaching them about the violent far right so that they can develop at least a beginning understanding of what we would call cultural competency for working with the violent far right. So you need to know about the population you're serving, and then you need to know how to treat that population now that you understand it a little bit better. So we've done that in two ways. We've done it online, and so people have reached out to us who are who are in that social service realm looking to volunteer. We train them, and then we assign them cases to partner with other formers, and that's a unique dynamic as well. So we've also trained formers who are volunteering to help support this outreach effort right alongside with someone who does social services. And then that will be ongoing. And the main objective there is one, to be supportive, two, to understand the needs, three, to make the right referrals, and four, hopefully introduce them to the social support network that we have for them if they want that. And then hand-holding them through that process for as long as it takes, which can oftentimes be just ongoing. There, there might not be a, a way to close the case out you know, a lot of times people just stay with us over the months and years. The second level of that is we are Life After Hate is training co-responder groups all over the country right now to apply the same methodology, but not necessarily referred by us, 
but by people who might be referred to them through their own sources. So like in San Diego, corrections is it realizes like there's a shortage on, on social service provisions for these men and women coming back to the community or have been identified by the community. And so reached out to us and say, how can we do this? So we'll walk in there and we'll train 50 people at a time from all the different aspects of social service provision that will touch this person. And then there's a coordinated effort to coordinate those services, whether it's with school, employers, whether it's your agent, your, you know, like your PO, whether it's your pastor. Everyone has had this cultural competency training and then best practice training. And then they all try to operate in that same spirit of approach with this person coming back. So when that person calls, depending on where they're at, they're going to be exposed to that. So somebody on the other end, typically Robert, who is our coordinator, uh, or director for exit is going to start the call and then he's going to pair them up with the right former, with the right social service provider who are going to tag team um, this case and then start to go walk them through those processes. And then oftentimes it leads us to also talking with the family, with significant others. And so, you know, it's a lot of case management is going into, uh, especially in the beginning. And then as things get uh, more serious, a little more informed, then we're able to start making the right kind of referrals. And ultimately, we want to see if, if they're open to it, them coming into our support network to continue to receive support, but also at one one day to be able to offer support, like giving back. You know, mm-hmm. now you've been you've been mentored through this process. Here's a new person you can help mentor this person just like you were. Wow, that's amazing. Now, dive, we touch on a little bit, but diving deeper into into who these um, far right groups are. First of all, where are they? Well, you know, it's kind of it's kind of interesting um, in the sense there there are there are cities in our nation that are probably dealing with more of this dynamic than others. Like we know, like Southern California is is a well known um, activity spot. You know, San Diego, Orange County, Los Angeles, those areas. We're also seeing a lot of activity in Oregon, but they can be anywhere. And to be honest, because of social media platforms, um, people feel they can be in the remotest places in the country and still feel like they're a part of a broader community. You know, we've known that there are people like Dylan Roof. He, you know, he became a white supremacist, but didn't know another white supremacist. He, it all happened online for him, wow. right? And so it, these, it's it's kind of crazy because you're a part of a virtual community, which makes you feel like you're a part of a physical community, but you're really not. Um, and so there, you know, the, the question is, are they on the rise? Are more people coming out? You know, there, and there's debates around that. We think that people have been inspired to be more open about their long held beliefs, you know, as a result of some of the political climate in our country, but you know, they're, they could be anywhere. They could be everywhere. And all it takes is one person to affect the entire nation. Mm. You know, yeah. I just came back from the funeral in El Paso. I saw this community. I was in line four hours just to get into the church. But there were people, there was even someone there wearing a MAGA hat. You wow. know, um, it's it was, you know, there. but everyone was there as a community to to kind of honor this one person out of all of the other victims that were there, I believe the other 22 victims were there to honor one person. But you see the ripple effect of what that hatred did. And maybe in many ways, it's the right response, you know, that these things aren't going to happen to people in our community and be ignored or unseen. I thought it was crucially important for so many people to be there to let that city and the rest of the nation know, like, you know, what you do to one, you do to all, and we're all going to have a reaction. We're all going to have a response. That's what I meant earlier. Like, we all have a part to play. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes bearing witness can be just as important as, like, doing direct activist work. Some people stereotype someone who's on the far right. They think of them as, especially coming, I'm a New Yorker, so coming from, like, progressive New Yorkers often will have the stereotype that someone who's in the far right is someone from a lower economic class, a frustrated, pasty white kid, uh, a total loser who just is living in their mother's basement and has no other choice but to be an extremist. Is that true? This has become, I've started to see, and I think most of the country has started to see that 
there has been a concerted effort to change the image by themselves of how they're perceived by the greater community, right? So, you know, a lot of white supremacists don't want to be called white supremacists. They find other terms like the alt-right, a national, you know, white nationalist. And there, there's a number of terms, you know, Christian identity. There, there's a, just a number of terms that are used in an effort to rebrand, reframe, re-image what they're like. You know, a lot of them are moving away from the swastika and the bolts and trying to find like these Nordic uh, symbols. Or, you know, it's no longer just the broken home trailer park boots, ball head, tatted, skinny, scrawny, pot-smoking kid who drinks too much. It's, that doesn't fit the model or the norm anymore. Uh, that, that can certainly still be a part of it, but what we saw in Charlottesville, what did you see in Charlottesville? You saw what looked like young, you know, well-dressed, buttoned up, you know, hair combed to the side. You know, you, you would think you were just walking past uh, an everyday person in that way. And many of them didn't anticipate, you know, the blowback that they would receive due to the amount of coverage that that got. But there was quite a bit. And a lot of them now are living in shame, are, are hiding, you know, are uh, uh, worried about their well-being, have been ostracized, uh, kicked out, fired, you know, um, from their jobs. So. I don't think it's just the kid who's in the basement, you know, disenfranchised, broken family. No, it's it's not that anymore. In fact, a lot of these um, groups are trying to recruit from colleges. They're trying to recruit from places that haven't historically been thought of as recruiting grounds. And so, you know, they they want to clean up their image. They want some of the best minds. And this isn't new. This might be new to the movement, but I've watched the gangs in Chicago go through this same sort of evolutionary attempt. There was this whole movement to become a part of politics and to make sure everyone went to school and improved their education and became business owners and homeowners. Like, But the underlying core was still rooted in criminality, hatred, violence, you know, illicit activity. It was what I would say is putting sugar on a pile of crap and trying to make a donut out of it. it it's still a pile of crap. It's not going to taste very good. You know what I mean? So yeah. this makeover is an attempt to try to be more attractive to a larger audience and to improve their own image so that people aren't as reactionary when they show up. You know, and here's what's even trickier. Here's what's become, I think, even more insidious. These groups have started to steal language from the, the last 50 years of civil rights lessons. So every and everything that we learned through civil rights, all the progress that we've made, you know, uh, the rules that we've made, they're now trying to apply to themselves. They're, they're hiding behind uh, the Constitution, uh, you know, trying to say it's freedom of speech, the right to do this, the right to do that, that they're being oppressed because of the color of their skin. They're being denied opportunities because they're white, you know, that they have become the minority and therefore they're the, you know, the true people that are. And while there might be some truth to that, like, let's just say, I don't know, I'm not saying that there is. Let's say that their their grievance was valid. It doesn't justify scapegoating uh, the, the groups that they have and targeted and killed over the decades. And it doesn't justify the violence, period. There are other ways to go about trying to correct what you might perceive as wrongs and injustices. And you should. If if that's the case, you should. But instead, what they've done is they've made terrorism seem as if it is the only true form of, uh, of a social justice response. And that if you're not willing to be violent, you're not really fighting for the cause. You're not, you're, you're not, you're part of the problem. And so just like the guy in Oregon who said, you know, what you call terrorism, you know, I call activism, it's, it's kind of the way they're trying to market this, you know, and you don't start out that way. These guys don't start by recruiting people to go do shootings or stabbings or run people over with their car. They start out by saying, um, very, like very similar in my life, you know, they start by saying, I identify with you. I, I see what you're going through. Let me tell you what we're doing about it and see if it interests you. And, and because somebody finally understands you, you feel like they're messaging uh, fits your your dilemma, and they're gonna willing to give you a project to help try to help you feel like you can do something about it. And then it leads little by little. They get groomed into going deeper and deeper toward and closer towards violence. So Melania, Sammy tells us that hatred is suffering expressed, 
So what is up with Donald and all the hatred that comes out of his mouth every time he speaks, or I should say tweets? I actually haven't registered a word that he says since 1999. Wait, you're at the rally, you're right next to the podium, you're looking right at him, and you don't hear him scream and his followers chanting? I'm very skilled, Lauren. Apparently. Maybe you can teach me how to look so vapidly in the distance sometime. Mm, That is sharing. Not allowed in the Trump's family. For the rest of us, here are a few things to keep in mind. There's hope for people, even if they don't want to be rehabilitated themselves. Look at Sammy's journey from being a runaway to being a throwaway, then on to becoming a speaker, author, and executive director of a nonprofit. Remember that hatred is suffering expressed. And moments of empathy can dissolve that hatred. We are, in the micro level, a reflection of the larger issues around us. And there's a difference between calling people out and calling people in. Let me know how it goes. Before we go into the I Don't Care Do You segment, I'd like to do a few things. First, I want to encourage everyone to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It really, really helps other people find us. And this information is so needed right now. Second, I want to tell you that you can follow Reconcile the Isle on my Twitter and Instagram at Lauren Logie, L-O-G-I. And do consider signing up at laurenlogie.com slash podcast to get the free stuff from me and my guests. This episode, Sammy would like to offer his autobiography, Forebears, The Myths of Forgiveness. It's in a PDF in the VIP group. Also there, again, he's so, so generous with us. He's also giving us some former's anonymous literature as well as we'll have a link to his TED Talk on the power of forgiveness, which will totally move you to tears in the most wonderful way. And also on my website, you can find out about some other exciting things going on. My book, Inside Melania, What I Learned About Melania Trump by Impersonating Her, comes out in March. And I'm going on tour with the book and a full-length show called The Melania Trump Roadshow, Get Out the Vote and Get Me Out of the White House of Garbage. Starts in May goes through June, and we might have some spots this summer, things that come through the line every day. And also we have four shows in March if you get to listen to this in time. Full details at themelaniashow.com and also at laurenlogie.com. Listen, we have to learn how to have public dialogue again. The world's on fire, and we've got to talk about it. And there's no better way to understand the importance of this by reading the headlines. So Melania, give us the top headlines in the I Don't Care Do You segment. Here's all the things that I don't care to you about. Coronavirus is spreading throughout the United States. Supreme Court is going to hear major abortion case which might limit or eliminate a woman's right to choose. Eight people died when tornado went through Nashville and central Tennessee. But I don't care. Do you? Thank you to everyone who's made this podcast possible. Thank you to Sophia Reyes-Jones for editing. To Devin Edwards for creating the intro, Maddie McLennan for making the podcast art, and a shout out to Alan Waters, Danny Hotes, and Craig Franson, who helped me to conceptualize this podcast. And of course, thank you to Sammy Rangel for being such a wonderful guest. See you in two weeks.